Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's edition of the About Tree Review podcast. Here to amplify diverse voices in media, I'm your host, as always, that guy named John. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. It is listed everywhere, Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, all of those. You can also stream the episodes directly from the website abouttreeview.com, which is where you can find full links to the show notes and the films that are discussed. If you want to support the show, you can do that by clicking on the PayPal link in the description below or going to the Amazon wishlist and picking something up to help out the studio. On this week's episode, I will be discussing and reviewing two new movies, Britney Runs a Marathon and Don't Let Go, as well as discussing and reviewing the new Netflix show, Woo Assassins. Before we get into all of that, we will go to the original theme song created by Damien Randall of Ill-Mannered Media. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. So the first film review on this week's episode is Brittany Runs a Marathon, directed by Paul Downs Colezo, who I actually got to sit down and interview when he was in town a few months ago for SIF, the Seattle International Film Festival. So definitely check out that episode. It will be on the same feed that you are listening to this on. And you can also, again, see that on abouttreeview.com. There should be a video version on YouTube soon. I'm still tweaking it and coming up with a new format for how I want to do things for my YouTube interviews or YouTube videos rather. So definitely check that out. So that will be with Paul down to Calazo. So Brittany Runs a Marathon is this story that stars Jillian Bell as well as a great ensemble cast of a lot of people I did not immediately recognize, which is nice because obviously Jillian Bell very recognizable these days. She has been doing a ton of stuff. Lil Rel is in there in this film as well. And then just, yeah, quite a few other people that are not as immediately recognizable. So that helps because then it is not, oh, this person from that thing and this person from that thing. And you can just kind of let the story unfold. So this, this story, Brittany is overweight, out of shape, unmotivated, and is just kind of sad, you know, like deeply sad in parts, but constantly uses humor as a deflection, which I think all of us can connect to on some level. I know all of us have our own coping mechanisms that work in various ways. Jillian Bell's character, Brittany, definitely relies on humor to immediately diffuse situations that could lead to her feeling awkward or when she is just feeling uncomfortable she will throw in something to kind of lighten the mood. So during this movie, as she is going through all of these kind of trials and tribulations and people around her sometimes are not very nice. Her roommate says some very mean, pointed things at her, not just when she is kind of, you know, 
overweight and dealing with those things, but even when she starts changing and starts working out and starts running and starts trying to change her life for the better, people still want to find those things to kind of pull her down. And so those types of things, again, are very relatable. And I think with a different director or perhaps a different script, because Paul actually wrote this script as well. And it is kind of based off of his real friend who was kind of the inspiration for this. And he made it very clear, both in our interview and in multiple interviews that he has done, this is not a biopic about his friend. This is something that a friend of his went through, but this is very fictionalized. This is very, you know, fantastical in certain ways. And I think because of that, I think because of how much he cares about the subject matter, he handles it with precision and tact versus some of the other stories that we could see like this or that we have seen like this, where whether it is an overweight guy or an overweight woman, and then there was like, oh, but I want to start working out, and then I become trim and fit, and my life is so much better, and yay me. And some of those just feel hollow. Some of those just feel like they are not really genuine, that they are more placating the issue. This film does not have that feeling, which was very unusual, especially for this genre. This, this is a comedy. It is a, a dramedy, you know, I would say. And so it very easily could have gone down that path a few different times in the movie where it could either be that heavy-handed drama or that like saccharine, sweet, kind of romantic-ish type of scenario, but it does not. And so that actually kept me engaged in the film because even though you might be waiting for those cliches, you might be waiting for those tropes, when those are not happening and the characters are developing in unique and organic ways and nobody is a complete 180 of what they used to be and then you know suddenly everything is great that is not the case all the way from the beginning to the end of the film we see Brittany doubting herself you know and, and it is this story of not just kind of self reflection but just self observation and self image and at the end of it she is still using humor to diffuse these situations and a couple of the characters kind of call her to the carpet for that and they're like, you know, why do you why do you keep doing that? But that defense mechanism is so hardwired into her character that that is that is a hard thing to break. And so that was that was impressive. This is shot very well. This is Paul's first feature film or first film in general. They had 21 days to shoot for first time director to not just shoot a solid movie that, you know, he wrote, so definitely helps a little bit, but just have something complete. It tells a story. It is beginning, middle, and end, where, again, there are not very many lulls. There are not very many times, and you're like, all right, like, we know where this is going. The title is Brittany Runs a Marathon. At some point, she is going to run a marathon, but the way that it gets there, like I said before, it, it feels genuine, and there are parts of the film that make you doubt if it is actually going to live up to the title or if that title is going to lead to something else, if it is going to be a marathon of self-discovery, if it is going to be, you know, a marathon of other sorts. And so it leads you 
it leads you and kind of holds your hand through this process. And she is around, yeah, just some some mean people, but then also some very welcoming people who embrace her and her struggle. And her immediate defense mechanism is to push them away because why would they actually be being nice to her? So Jillian Bell gives a great performance. I loved this ensemble. And yeah, it just it felt real. These are real interactions that people can relate to. Nothing about this felt false or misleading. So I really appreciated that. Uh, so that is kind of it for Brittany Runs a Marathon because, again, I, I encourage you to listen to the interview that I did with Paul Downs Clazer to really get involved with, you know, or rather hear him get involved with these characters and what his thought process was as he was making this film. So for those of you who are new to the podcast, the rating system, there are no stars, there are no letter grades. It is a very unique system that nobody else had come up with, a phrasing that nobody else had come up with. It is completely original to the About Tribute podcast. The rating system only has three choices. Those choices are good, bad, or ugly. A good film is something that you would recommend that you came out of the theater, you know, happy, or depending on the type of movie, maybe not happy necessarily, but you at least wanted to talk about the film with your friends, you know, and, and share about it and talk about it in ways that you were excited. A bad film, on the other hand, is something where you came out of the theater not really sure how you feel about the movie, not really something that you are excited to talk about very much, and an ugly film is avoid at all costs. So, Britney Runs a Marathon, directed by Paul Downs Clazo, starring Jillian Bell, definitely gets a good from me. This is a solid dramedy, of which I am not... I, I, I do not tend to be a huge fan of this genre, but this is well-acted, well-structured, and did not fall into that pitfall of just tropes and cliches and setup and cliches. This is just a very authentic, real story. So yeah, Britney Runs the Marathon gets a good from me. Moving right along to the next film. This is Don't Let Go, directed by Jacob Estes, and he also wrote the screenplay for this. This stars David Oyelowo, Storm Reed, Byron Mann. He gets third billing. I'm not quite sure why, but I will get into that in a little bit. Uh, McKelty Williamson and Alfred Molina, along with a couple other people. One of the things I really liked about this film, right off the bat, was the cast. David Oyelowo is great. Storm Reed is great. Alfred Molina is in this. Uh, I mean... He is solid, but it is Alfred Molina. Like, it is hard to be like, ugh, he was bad in this. So I liked that those performances were solid. This movie is centered around the relationship between David Oyelowo and Stormy's character, uh, Jack Radcliffe, and his niece, Ashley. And Jack basically is kind of a, sur not surrogate father, because both of her parents, Ashley's parents, are in the film, but she truly relies on him for support, for communication in ways that she cannot talk to her parents with and about topics that she does not really feel comfortable. And they're, they truly have a friendship. You know, a familial bond is one thing, but this is a friendship. And so Jack really cares for her. During the first act, and this is all in the trailer, so it is not a big spoiler, 
Jack gets a phone call from Ashley and it, the call is breaking up and he starts getting worried. He goes over to their home and finds that Ashley and her parents have been murdered. He, of course, you know, he is a police officer. So he, of course, starts to try and piece things together. He is working with the department. He at one point becomes a suspect, you know, starts going in these directions. And then fast forward a few days and his phone rings and it is Ashley who is alive. So he, of course, goes into a big panic mode. Turns out he is communicating with her in the past. And now he wants to then find ways to use clues from where she is in the past and where he is in his present and her future to save her from this murder. He goes about this in interesting ways that at first I was like, oh, that is clever. But then I realized that everything he does has been done before in these type of pseudo time travel pieces. Like one of one movie that really did it successfully was Frequency, which was from like yeesh, like 20 years ago, I want to say. Dennis Quaid, Jim Caviezel, where father, son end up being able to talk to each other on a ham radio during a lightning storm past to present. And through that, you know, they develop these ways to communicate through the time and not just communicate over the ham radio, but physical things. So that is what Jack does with Ashley when he really starts to piece together that, okay, she is in the past. She is alive. How do I keep her that way? He does some interesting things and his moment of doubt or clarity rather about talking to his niece in the past is only a few minutes which I also found odd. It is not the, oh my gosh, I must be drinking too much, or maybe I did not sleep as much. Within the first phone call, he starts to believe it. And then by like the second kind of phone call, he is all in. He's like, oh, okay, this is happening. Since I'm talking to you in the past, paint a big red X, you know, on the side of the barn and blah, 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 and that she does that. So he kind of just rolls with it straight from the beginning, which was nice Except then it starts going left. It starts introducing so many unnecessary plot lines into something that really needed to be simple. Like this is something where, okay, his family got murdered. He has clues based off of his niece who's in the past and then just work it from there. Instead, we get this layer after layer after layer of subplot and bad guys, and cartels, and maybe dirty cops, and maybe a cartel. And it was like, what are you doing? Why are you overcomplicating a very simple story? And I never understood when, when creators do that. When it is like, this could be a really tight film, but it just felt bloated. It just felt like there were so many different plot elements in this film, including who I mentioned before, who gets third billing, Byron Mann, who I will also be talking about with Wu Assassins. He gets third billing. Dude is in it for about 10 minutes. And the way that we get these revelations about his character, it wants to trick us into believing that certain characters or certain events matter when they truly do not. Because there are parts of this where they easily 
could cut out characters, cut out plot lines, and nothing would change. You could still have the same plot going the same direction, but a lot tighter. It, it just kind of blows my mind when that happens. There was, again, interesting things with this timeline presence, or ti not timeline presence, timeline mechanic, I will say. But it, it, kinda, it was kind of the fool me once type of thing where he does a couple things that are smart and then he just forgets about other things. At one point, he is marking a calendar being like, okay, you are seven days in my past. What is going to happen in these seven days that leads to you you know, having this accident? And then we get different things. And of course, like a lot of these things, you cannot escape fate. And so he tries doing a couple things. Oh, turns out she gets murdered again. He tries doing something else. But the whole time, this timeline keeps stretching. The calendar mechanic goes away. He just stops tracking that completely. But things keep progressing. And I do not know if maybe the writer, who is also the director, Jacob Estes, just did not know how to tie up those loose ends or how to, how to make those connections seem tangible but it was just it was a mess and it was one of the films where after all of these press screenings you know me and other members of the film critic community here in Seattle we have to give our quote to the studio rep who is there who is wanting to gather information to give back to the studio that conversation inevitably ends up being sometimes three to five critics as we just kind of talk through the movie we just saw and sometimes our opinions can change. And sometimes we come out of it, but through talking to other critics, we we're like, okay, that is a good point. You know, maybe they were trying to do X, Y, and Z. And it is a collaborative type of thing. We all have our own opinions, but that collaborative conversation can lead in different directions. With Don't Let Go, that group of us, there were like three critics as we were talking to the studio rep. The more we talked about this film, the more plot holes the more gaping plot holes we could find. And just, it was like pulling apart a sweater by threads. Where like you see one and you're like, okay, maybe this is a short one. You just kind of pull it off. Sure. Somebody else mentioned something. Oh, there's this and this. And by the end of it, we talked for maybe 15 to 20 minutes. And every part of this movie could be pulled apart. Every part of this film, outside of the performances of the two leads... There was just almost nothing there. There was nothing interesting to say. There was nothing that shows what this film could have been. Because, yeah, you, just, you the more you think about it, almost the more, not even upset. That is way too strong of a word. But the more just disappointed I, I was with this film. So that that is just unfortunate is the easiest way I can describe it. So with that in mind, my official rating, I should say, for Don't Let Go, this is a tough one because arguably this should be an ugly. This is something that there is no reason people need to see this in the theater. This is something where even if you're watching this on Netflix, you might get bored. You might not make it through. But at the same time, the two leads, David Oyelowo and Storm Reed, are great. And they do have chemistry, and you do feel this love and connection with them. 
Nobody else has that. Nobody else has that type of dynamic. And that is very unfortunate. So I think just based off of the performances of the two leads, I will give this a bad, but do not rush to see this in the theater. It probably is only going to last in the theater a couple months. So just kind of wait for streaming if, if at all. So don't let go gets a bad from me now to a TV show. And I do not review TV shows as much as I would like to. And especially with Netflix, you know, doing all of this, I think, you know, it it is a good time for me to jump in here and, and try and throw some of these in when I can. So this new film or new film, new TV show is Woo Assassins. Now, this is created by Tony Krantz and John Worth, and John Worth also wrote a bunch of the episodes, had various directors, you know, because there were 10 episodes, and just like with a lot of TV, you bring in different people for different things, play to their strengths. If there's a very dramatic episode, you bring in a dramatic actor. You have a heavy martial arts epic episode, you bring in a martial arts director or somebody who can translate that in a positive way. So the story of Wu Assassins, I have been excited for this movie pretty much for, a, I keep calling it a movie, this series, pretty much for a year. When I covered the Vancouver Asian Film Festival last year in Vancouver, BC, I watched a panel with John Worth about representation, and he was talking about the show, and it got me excited. This cast is stacked. So you have Iko Owais, who is Arguably one of the greatest on-screen martial artists of the 2010s, I would say. Even though, I mean, yeah, technically The Raid and The Raid Redemption, or not The Raid Redemption, but those films came out close around there. Eco-Wise is a legitimate, phenomenal martial artist. Uh, specializing in Salat, which is this Indonesian knife style that can be adapted for different things, of course. So he is great. I love his films. You also have Byron Mann, who I mentioned in Don't Let Go, uh, Lee Jun Lee, Lawrence Cao, Catherine Winnick, Juju Chan, Louis Tan, Celia Ao, Ji Ma, who is a legend in, in these types of films and TV shows. So what I liked about this show in particular is the diversity, not just in the cast, because you have an Indonesian actor, you have uh, Chinese-American actors, you have Chinese actors, you have Canadian actors, you have all of these different diverse representations, which is great in and of itself. But you also have the diversity of language in this film. There is Indonesian, there's Cantonese, there's English, there's some Russian. <laughs> I mean, so I liked that and all of those languages were spoken by people who can speak the languages or that they might even be their first language. So that was really cool. The fight choreography. Because it is Iko Owais, anybody who does not know who this is, that is fine. Action might not be your genre. I highly recommend finding The Raid. Get it on Blu-ray. I think they did a director's cut or extended cut. It has some of the best fight choreography, martial arts choreography for film of this generation. It is phenomenal. So what he did for this show, what Eco did, is he brought in his four main 
kind of stunt guys and fight choreographers and then taught the rest of the cast the choreography. When you have an actor who can not only do the martial arts, but teach the choreography, that is a special talent. So what this show does is it really focuses on that. It gives him the opportunity to show how great he is. The actual plot of the film, he plays a chef who, by happenstance, uh, becomes the Wu assassin. So he is given this talisman, whereas the life experience of a hundred monks, or maybe a thousand monks, I forget. So he becomes this phenomenal martial artist, and his whole job is to kill the other Wu bearers, the other talisman bearers, which are the Chinese elements. So water, fire, uh, metal, and wood. I feel like I'm missing one. Earth. There we go. So with the Chinese elements, you know, they each have these talismans. They each have the power to control that element. He has to then go and kill them to stop one of them from taking over the world? Question mark. It is a very loose plot that does not make sense. Uh, and his his teacher through all of this is Celia Ao, who plays uh, Ying Ying. Her fight choreography is also solid, but the biggest downfall there are two. There are two really big downfalls with this TV show. One is the dialogue. The dialogue in this is some of the most wooden, structured, clunky dialogue, just paint by numbers dialogue. It it is hard to listen to sometimes. Where it yeah, just it it is rough. So the other and and only about two of the characters have chemistry. Maybe three of the characters have chemistry with each other in the scenes. Outside of that, it is a group of people in a room saying lines, and that is it. It is dry. It just... And I could tell the eco, like, he is trying to do more roles in English. Because, obviously, this is a big market. So he did Mile 22 last year, and it was not his fault, but that movie was an absolute train wreck. So I can understand his desire to want to do more roles in English. At the same time, when you have this ability in a TV show to have different languages, we can handle subtitles. And there are so many scenes in this movie in different languages. I really wish they had leaned into that a little bit more and kind of given us that, I, I don't even know that, that oomph that might have made his character in these scenes, more relatable with the other characters as opposed to just delivering these very dry lines. So that is problem number one. Problem number two, so this, of course, is this fantastical uh, martial arts epic in modern-day Chinatown. The CGI that is used in this when he kind of first holds the talisman and he gets these kind of flames around him with the monk's strength going into him, and then we see the other talisman bearers using their gifts and abilities. This is like 90s level CGI. 
I mean, I, I was honestly shocked at how bad some of it was. And it was bad unnecessarily. When it comes to like the fight choreography, that was solid and it was practical. There were a couple, of course, you know, some wire poles and things like that. Totally fine. But when you have characters who are supposed to be manifesting these powers of fire or water or metal or earth, and you can tell that they themselves and possibly the creators of the show did not have any idea what it would look like when they actually started working on the CGI. So it has this disconnect. You see the actor doing these motions and summoning their element of choice, essentially, and everything was just mapped in later. Because it, it, there were a couple times when Byron Mann's character, who, spoiler alert, is, is the fire woo. You find out in like episode two. And you see him kind of doing some contact juggling with fire. That was one of the only instances that I could tell the actor had a conversation with the director being like, okay, what will this look like? Or what should I be doing for it to make sense? And it did. It, it looked, his motions looked appropriate for the effect they put in later, but everybody else, it just, it just did not. And that, that was, that was rough. Uh, Mark Dacascas, who is definitely kind of on this resurging uh, TV and, and movie path, which is great to see. He was in John Wick 3. He is in this. But his character in this, he basically plays one of the other incarnations of the Wu assassin, which is essentially Iko Awai's character, uh, whose name is Kai Jin. It is supposed to be his Clark Kent Superman persona. It is never explained as to when that effect takes place. So when he walks into a room and starts beating people up or people come to him, they start beating him up. At every now and then you will see him look into a reflection and it will be Mark Dacascus. Cool. How are we supposed to know what the other person is seeing and when does that take effect? Because all we see is Eco come into the scene and then we are supposed to believe that everybody else does not see him, but they see an older, bald Mark Dacascus character. And it, it just, it never made sense. There were so many things that went unexplained that could have been easily explained as opposed to what they try to do, which was pull from... Chinese history, mythology, and lore, and bring in way too much unnecessary things, as opposed to being like, okay, here is something simple we could explain, boom, here it is, and instead they, they kind of chose the hardest route possible. So I am not sure why they did that, but it just, it, it again, it had this disconnect when it came to the script and the CGI that made this a tough watch. I mean, this was 10 episodes and, and I, I made it through all 10, but by about episode five or six, I was really wanting big steps in the plot to move forward. And they were still taking their time to do that. So it is on Netflix. Anybody with Netflix, you know, can give it a shot. I have heard when I was talking about this with some other people, they were like, I'm about three episodes in. Does it get better? And my honest answer to that question is not 
really, we do get some good character revelations. Byron Mann's character definitely goes through some interesting transitions from what we believe him to be to what he actually is and what he becomes or what what he has the potential to become. Uh, one of the other people in this, uh, Catherine Winnick, who plays Christine Gavin. She is this pseudo double agent, almost triple agent. Actually, yeah, kind of a triple agent at, at one point. She has some interesting character dynamics. Louis Tan, I'm a huge fan of Louis Tan. He needs to be cast in a comic book movie where he actually isn't there for longer than he was in Deadpool 2. He is great. He is, again, an actor who is a martial artist and not an actor who learns martial arts. And you can tell. You can definitely tell. There are most of the people in this film, the martial arts works. Because again, they have great choreographers and they have people with a martial arts background. Byron Mann, for as many martial arts films and TV shows he has been in, does not come from a martial arts background, but he has the physicality to make it believable. As does everybody else in this show. But, oof. The fact that we have to suffer through some of the most bland dialogue and bad CGI just to get to some solid action set pieces in each episode is is tough. And it makes it really hard for me to recommend this. Um, I cannot give this an ugly because of how good the fight scenes are and because this is how action choreography, especially for the budget that they had, this is how it should be done. But yikes. Uh, th- this is... This is a tough one. And if you make it three episodes, four episodes, and do not want to finish it, hit me up. I will gladly tell you what happens. Or just go on the wiki page and you could read it. If you do not want to finish this, I will not hold it against anybody. So, uh, with all of that glowing praise for at least certain elements of this TV show, I gotta give Woo Assassins a bad. I, I, I just, yeah, it, it was not terrible enough for me to say ugly but it was far from good so this gets a a solid bat for woo assassins all right so short episode this week a quick recap of the films that i talked about so britney wins a marathon very heartwarming genuine authentic story of self-discovery gets a good don't let go a family dynamic time travel film that pretty much says nothing and does Nothing, but has a good performance by the two leads. Performances by the two leads. That gets bad. And Wu Assassins. Great fight choreography. Cannot save. Wooden, stilted, and clunky dialogue. And that gets a bad as well. On upcoming episodes of the About to Review podcast, there will be a review for It, Chapter 2, uh, The Goldfinch, as well as Renton City Comic Con is coming up again, and I will be covering it for the second year in a row, doing some interviews uh, on site with a couple people that I will be getting their list, or getting the list of who I'm interviewing soon. Uh, I hope that would be great. So definitely look forward to that upcoming upcoming episode with those films in it. Again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. As I said at the beginning of the show, Follow the podcast on social media at About to Review, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and also YouTube.com slash About to Review. If you want to financially support the show, fantastic. 
You will be my best friend. At least until I spend all of your money and I ask you for more. You can do that by directly clicking the PayPal link in the description below. You can also go on the wish list on Amazon and pick up something for the studio. So for this week's episode of the About to Review podcast, thank you for listening. I have been your host, as always, that guy named John, and we will see you next time. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.